Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Coven as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get to what's on your radar this week, Carmen. This time, I have had sufficient amount of sleep, like last week, <laughs> so I ought to be able to string two words together, at the very least. You were very I'm... well. Very, You did a very good job last week, and you're going to uh... do an incredible job this week. You're so supportive, but I know for a fact that I could not get my thoughts straight. I think we recorded like six o'clock in the morning. It was yeah, six or seven, something like it that. Super early, too early for my brain to be functioning <laughs> and discussing things of such depth. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I got you. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's get back to it. What is, <laughs> I just talk about myself first, but what's on your radar this week, Kerman? <laughs> Well, you are on my radar, just not for this podcast, um, but we are going to discuss Russia, Ukraine and Israel, Hamas. But the big news of the week was that the intelligence community within the United States has identified a new Russian capability, military capability, uh, that seems to be worrying some people on the House Select Committee for Intelligence. How do they know it works if they've never tested it? Is that the problem? Is they're worried about them testing it? Well, there, I mean, there's... I mean, I guess few, we'll get to it, but I mean, this yeah, is just Yeah, and then so... you have to kind of understand, like, within the intelligence community when something... So something like this, when we're talking about the new capability, which is space, uh, a space capability, uh, we found out it's a, likely a nuclear capability within space. Uh, those are, they're highly classified because of the means at which the intelligence community uh, gathered that intelligence. So it's not... Ooh. Just the fact that, oh, yeah, Russia is using this new capability or, or plans has to, or plans, or plans to, or... to. Um, it's it's that it's highly classified because it deals with space, which is still a highly classified uh, area within the intelligence community. And because um, the means at which we obtain this information is probably highly classified. Oh, OK. All right. Well. So we're not going to get into any of that stuff because I'm. I'm Quite honestly, I don't have all that information because I am not within that realm anymore. But um, what I can bring to the table is identifying, you know, when an intelligence report like this comes out without even seeing it, we can kind of, um, you Glean know, go some information, especially stuff that's it. coming out in open source through sources within the media community. Um, a lot of people, there are a lot of people in the intelligence community that love to talk. And like you. So, like me, but I don't like to talk about my job, as you know. What? What do you mean you don't like talking about your job? We literally talk yeah, about your your job all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, 
you know, on a day-to-day basis. And I'm like, how was work? Eh, eh, yeah, we do it, it was okay. only talk about it on here, I guess, now that I think but about it. gathering geopolitical insights and telling that to you, the listener who's listening right now, I absolutely love doing that. That's why this podcast keeps going. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, so with all that said, but we're not done. Um, that is going to take up uh, probably a lot of it. You're going to hear a lot of tangents from from probably that discussion. From me? Yeah. I mean, we're both going to go off and uh, do our little thing and our tangents. Mm-hmm. But right. um, I also want to talk about, you know, where we're sitting at with China's Middle East strategy. Uh, we've talked about this early on when the Houthis were attacking merchant ships in the Red Sea. Um, and China wasn't doing anything about it. And so how does that fit into their Middle East strategy? I want to give some insights into that. And then 2024 is the year of the elections. And that means we're going to talk about it. And Indonesia had elections uh, this past week. We're going to get into what what was the outcome of those elections and how it impacts the U.S.-China relations, because Indonesia is actually a partner with China and the United States. So we'll see where... The new president of Indonesia sits in this whole battle of adversaries. Oh my God! I thought you were going to never shut up. <laughs> I can. I can just keep going if you want. I know. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's just funny because like the talking pro- points are like little blurbs. Yeah, yeah. And you I can find just a way. Up. Did you? You can just. You can just keep going, and it's really impressive because that's harder for me. Yeah, it's impressive. I like giving you a hard time. I'm allowed to. We've been married for almost 18 years. It's what comes with the territory. <laughs> well, fun fact about me is if you just have like a bullet point, I can mm-hmm. talk for hours on it. But if if you're just going to ask me to talk, I probably yeah. won't say anything. Yeah. You're like, tell me about I mean, you. You know that when I tell stories that you've never heard before and you're like, yeah. Why didn't I hear about this? And it's like, well, no one asked me about that specific. <laughs> <laughs> about that specific time that you didn't know about or that right. I didn't know about. I was supposed to ask you and Where? invite you to tell me about this. Right. non exactly story that we're not really talking about. <laughs> I, I know that happens a lot, but right now I can't think of any specific stories. But I know it happened recently where I, I just looked at you with my mouth again yeah. <laughs> like, very confused and i'm like this is the first time i'm hearing this story and this you, is the man i married <laughs> you did say that you were like well you didn't ask me i'm like <laughs> <laughs> didn't ask me the specific time that you didn't know about in yeah. my history okay yeah we are doing poorly today apparently we need to stay on track <laughs> Yeah. obviously i have way more energy than i had last week already it's apparent totally apparent we need to get to it though because we have a lot to get to um what is the latest coming out of ukraine all right so as we mentioned last week this uh stalemate that we've seen or the freeze that has happened within ukraine is over both sides are actually attempting to gain to gain ground on the front lines so we'll start with ukraine ukraine has uh, claimed that it disabled a third of russia's black sea fleet um, this is after its military intelligence said it sank another Russian warship. Um, this was in a drone attack by sea off the coast of Crimea. Now, on the Russian side, uh, they have started to advance in the Ukrainian town of Avdivka. And what is the significance of this particular town? 
Well, so uh, within Russia and Ukraine, Avdivka is seen as a gateway to the city of Donetsk. Uh, that's where Russian officials say that residents have been shelled by Ukrainian forces. Those shell the shelling is purportedly coming from Avdivka. So Russia wants to push Ukraine back from there to keep uh, Donetsk, which was that one region that you know they annexed. They want to keep. They say they want to keep it safe. So. Uh, why is it significant if Russia gains that back, not just because of the shelling that's going there, but it it could really boost Russian morale after they've taken some losses uh, and then demoralize Ukrainian forces who are having to deal with, are we going to get funding from the United States or are we going to get more munitions? Um, and those Ukrainian forces, as we've talked about, they've only made incremental gains since that really big counteroffensive they hyped up back in June. Got it. Well, excuse me. With all of the talk of an increase in fighting now that we are midway through February and coming up on the two year anniversary of this special military operation, which they're still calling. Yes, they're still calling it that. They're clinging to that. (laughs) Um, Has there been any talk of a diplomatic solution to this garbage? Yeah, well, so recently there has been some interesting developments. This is regarding Russia's stance on the conflict. So this is coming from Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Um, He mentioned the possibility of a political and diplomatic resolution within the conflict. But it was only concerning the currently occupied territories, those new territories that they they took over and and annexed. Um, It's a very interesting statement from Lavrov. It gives us a little peek into the kind of discussions that are going on with Putin right now. And it indicates that Moscow actually may be open to negotiations, but with a narrow focus on those territories that it currently occupies in Ukraine. Um, Now, it suggests a willingness to engage diplomatically, but those certain parameters are what we need to to focus on. And those parameters are parameters that only suit Russia's interests. So are you saying um, the annexed territories... They'll only focus on that, but still allow for the conflict to continue outside of that. So they want to focus on getting a peace deal together that focuses for the annexed, for the annexed yeah. regions. And okay. they, what they believe, what Russia believes, if they get that negotiated, that can what they will tell Ukraine and the rest of the, the Western world is mm-hmm. that will effectively stop the conflict. Because, you know, Putin said when he initially went in that that was what they were focused on and they really weren't focused on making a a push to Kiev and taking over all of Ukraine until they did two months into it, try to make a push for Kiev. Mm, I still don't understand. Are they they saying that they're going to stop the conflict elsewhere or are they just going to use this as like a stepping stone to continue trying to annex other So to be a lot like Crimea, where the agreement was made that, okay, we're not, you know, Ukraine, we're not going to really say it's Russia, but it kind of stops, it freezes the conflict. We're going to freeze the conflict. There's pop shots back and forth. But as long as Ukraine says we agree that you can have, um, you know, Donetsk, those other regions, Russia says, okay, we're not going to attack you like we are now. We'll pull our forces back. What they'll do is they'll pull their forces back to those regions Mm-hmm. and focus in right there into that region. And we'll get another like four or five years of sort of this frozen war. 
So despite this willingness to negotiate, it seems like there's still significant hurdles. And, you know, just to clarify for our listeners, you were saying that Vladimir Putin was offering to freeze this conflict. Mm -hmm. But the United States declined to engage Mm -hmm. with these overtures. So why do you think that is? Well, I mean, first off, uh, besides Tucker Carlson, there's a lack of trust from the United States in Putin's intentions. I mean, those are very much warranted. That's given Russia's previous actions in the region to where Putin went around. Remember, Putin went around and talked to all the world leaders and he was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then he did it. He invaded. So there's some reluctance there. Also, there's there may be reluctance to legitimize Russia's control over those occupied territories um, because what they really want is a full resolution to the conflict. So unless they don't want to freeze, they want troops out. And then, you know, agreements that says Russia won't invade again. So they're looking for that. Um, and then there's the issue of Ukraine's sovereignty. Um, and that's the most, I think that's one of the most important things for the U.S. and its allies. And that's what they want to uphold. Well, that makes total sense. Um, now, President Zelensky of Ukraine has been clear that he won't accept territorial concessions to Russia. And he also insists on regaining all Ukrainian territories. Yep. So obviously that doesn't really fit well into Putin's plan to freeze the conflict but maintain control of the territories. So how does this impact the prospects for a resolution? Obviously negatively. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It adds yet another layer of complexity to the peace negotiations. So. This is a non-starter for Ukraine. And, and when you're in peace negotiations and one of the non-starters for you is one of the non-starters for the other party, you can't get to an agreement. So I, I could say for as far as Zelensky goes, his refusal to compromise on the territorial integrity reflects that strong sentiment within Ukraine that they don't want to give any concessions to Russia. Russia was the aggressor. Russia's not actively winning this war so why do they need to con- why does ukraine need to concede um, it also highlights the challenges in finding common ground between the two parties involved well absolutely i mean now there have been conflicting reports about putin's willingness to compromise with some suggesting that he's open to concessions on ukraine's neutral status and even in nato membership i mean what's your assessment of these reports because these are obviously different than what we stated earlier yeah, and, and they're interesting reports, and you're going to see reports coming out on, on both sides of that. But what's interesting to me about it is it may indicate a shift in Russia's approach um, So because they understand that they are, may not be losing this war, but they're not winning it right now. Um, another factor is you know, Russia may just be paying lip service to gain approval from voters leading up to the elections in April. So... Putin's apparent readiness to consider all of these concessions that you talked about. Um, on one one side, it could signal a recognition that the Russian people have a desire to find a sustainable solution to the conflict. Basically, they are tired of even talking about this con- the special military operation. Um, I will say it is important to approach all of these reports with caution. We got to consider the broader context of Russia's strategic objectives in the region. So why are they allowing this information to get out there? That's what's confusing to me, because it like you said, it does. I mean, if they are entertaining or Putin is entertaining these 
um, concessions that he never would have touched before. It sounds like maybe the population isn't backing him as much as he's trying to imply. Yeah, and that's the trouble with having a state media that just regurgitates what the state government says. Um, you know, they'll say in public, everything's going fine, the people love it, all this kind of stuff. But if you get into some of the, you know, social media channels and scrape some of the information that that's out there, you're seeing, you know, people using VPNs within Russia to look like they're outside of Russia. So Russian people using VPNs to express their concerns and their doubts about what's going on. And even though they're they're doing that, they are that information is getting back to you know leadership within the government. And I do think they're identifying that we have to figure out something before these elections because we cannot look weak coming up leading up to the elections. Okay, well, I want to get into the recent developments regarding Ukraine's security arrangements. What exactly do these agreements entail? Well, so first it's that's going to be the agreements between Ukraine and several other countries, most notably the Group of Seven Nations. Um, you'll get the U.S., Canada, U.K. Uh, it aims to provide Ukraine with long-term security commitments. So this is not a short-term, let's get this war done with, uh, let's protect Ukraine during this war. This is a long-term security commitment. Uh, it covers a, a range of areas. It covers military and security aid a um, defense industrial cooperation. So with defense contractors like Lockheed Martin in the United States, uh, maybe there's some cooperation going on there. There's definitely going to be intelligence sharing and then something that Ukraine really needs, which is cyber defense. Um, that, that's going to be a big key to it. Now, also, they've included provisions for immediate consultations in the event of any subsequent Russian armed attack. So continuing this process if Russia decides to invade again after a peace deal is struck. Well, does Ukraine view these agreements as a substitute for NATO membership? No, not at all. Um, They are steadfast in their goal to join NATO. I want to be clear, this has been a goal of Ukraine since at least 2008. Putin has talked about it, that that is really what caused worry within Russia that NATO is getting on their doorstep. Caused worry within Russia. He means caused worry within his regime. <laughs> well, well, I mean, and and I did listen to the whole two hour, two hour, 15 minute Tucker Carlson interview, which started with about 40 minutes of Russian history dating back to the 15th century. Well, oh, uh, is this how they bolster their claims to the territories that exact, they're yeah. forcefully okay, going after? Okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a history lesson on how Ukraine is Russia. Let's go back to the 1500s for every single country. Right. So what would that look like? So then if I I mean, we, we that's, look that's, like no, we're not here. Absurd. <laughs> well, we can't. Here. Yeah. Well, part of me's not here. The other yeah. part of me is. I'm cut in half. It's true. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And, and I thought especially that portion of the interview was uh, ridiculous. But. I mean, Russian yes. history itself is interesting, but, yeah. you know, implying it, it, that, you know, when the question happen- is, why did you decide on February uh, 22nd to invade Ukraine? And you go, well, in the 15th century. Right? Yes, well, that's, that's absurd. That's a bold move, Cotton. Yeah, that doesn't um, work. Now, back to, you know, Ukraine and NATO. 
no, they don't consider this a substitute for NATO membership. They still want NATO membership. And so while this all provides important security commitments, Ukraine has emphasized that NATO membership remains the most essential part of their long-term security. Are there any specific details about what Ukraine hopes to gain from these agreements? So Ukraine sees the agreements as crucial for ensuring like swift and sustained aid in the event of an attack. So they're really that long term. We know Russia is going to try again um, if they're not successful in taking over all of Ukraine. They're going to keep trying. Uh, the security measures aim to avoid shortcomings, which previous security assurances had. That was the 1994 Budapest uh, memorandum that got going. So Ukraine actually took, not took, but they acquired the Russian nuclear weapons after the fall of the Soviet Union because they were in Ukraine whenever it became a country. And so that 1994 Budapest memorandum was what actually led to the denuclearization of Ukraine And then that really set them up for failure for what they're seeing right now against Russia. Um, The agreements also provide a framework for long-term support. So we're not going to stop supporting Ukraine now, you know, or after this special military operation, it's going to keep going. That's going to include the reconstruction of areas and military assistance. Yeah, we're just going to hastily pull out of there with no warning and leave them. The U.S. has never done that. Ever in the history of the U.S. military, they have never never done that. do not have a pattern of abandoning (laughs) Quite frankly, I am upset that you would even bring that up. (laughs) Hey, I think we all got to call out the good things and the bad things of what our countries do. Yeah, facts are facts. I'm not trying to talk crap. It's just a fact. This is... Okay, so now that we have a pretty comprehensive update on the war in Ukraine, let's discuss the latest from the Israel-Hamas conflict, which seems to be expanding into Lebanon with Israeli strikes following Hezbollah rocket attacks on Israel. What's the significance of these recent events? Yeah, I mean, this marks a dangerous turn in uh, what's already a tense region. Both Israel and Hezbollah have said they, they do not want war with each other. Um, but Hezbollah has a long-standing conflict with Israel. It might not be a war, but it is a conflict. Um, now, the, this current exchange of fire between the two sides has intensified. Um, this has now resulted in civilian casualties. Um, there's also those fears of this turning into a wider conflict, and now we have a full-on war within the Middle East. Can you shed some light on the dynamics driving this conflict? Is it just about Hezbollah or does Hamas factor into this pivot by Israel? Well, the roots of the conflict uh, in the 14th century. No, that's we're going back. That's not the history lesson that we were (laughs) we were asking for. This is not the history lesson you're looking for. Okay. Um, No, but it it goes back decades. Obviously, Um, Hezbollah has been has has long been engaged in a proxy war with Israel the proxy so they're an Iranian proxy uh, um, they're being outfitted with weapons by Iran to attack Israel they view Israel as an occupying force in the region what does that sound like those are the same things that Hamas has said was their reason for their attack on in October 
that Israel is an occupying force and we need to get Israel out of the Middle East. Um, now, Israel, on the other hand, says that uh, Hezbollah is a terrorist organization and it's a threat to its security. Now, the situation in Gaza adds another layer of complexity to the conflict because now you're fighting on both fronts, the north and the south. Um, you actually flip that because Hamas is in the south and Hezbollah is in the north. Um, but the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza has fueled tensions globally. Um, and, and there are worries that that's going to turn into a regional conflict. So all this is playing together to possibly have a regional conflict that does involve Iran. And making matters worse, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, has pledged his support, his continued support for Hamas, no matter what they do. That's obviously furthering, further escalating tensions between Hezbollah and Israel. Well, what are the prospects for de-escalation in the near future? De-escalation is going to require diplomatic efforts from both sides. So you're going to have to get a terrorist organization to come to the table, much like Israel and Hamas are doing right now. Um, but also the international communities going to have to get involved. Um, they're going to have to pressure... And there's a lot of pressure towards Israel. I really believe they need to be pressuring Iran on this to, you know, stop their proxy wars that, that are going on. But with tensions running high and, and both sides unwilling to back down, I think achieving a ceasefire is going to be very challenging. Is there any news on a potential ceasefire in Gaza? Not at the moment. The two sides are mm -hmm. still going back and forth, trying to find compromises, um, but they're they're trying to find compromise they can both accept, and that's becoming very difficult. Um, the IDF has said they're going to continue to advance towards Rafah, which is uh, which is near the border with Egypt. And Egypt has been kind of wavering right now. Just real quick on this one, Egypt has said if Israel does continue in Rafah, they are they're going to put sanctions on Israel. And then they said, okay, IDF, please come in and continue your ground offensive. Because it's borders Egypt. There's a Rafah Egypt and there's a Rafah Palestine. So it's very close to Egypt right now. Well, with that update, let's get to the story of the week. Recently, there's been a lot of buzz surrounding a cryptic statement from House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner regarding a serious national security threat. I know we talked about it on our Instagram page yep. yesterday, I believe. And obviously, some new information has come to light since then. So can you shed some light on what exactly is going on here? Yeah, it looks like uh, the House Intelligence Committee received intelligence on a potential threat that we found out was related to Russian military capabilities, specifically concerning the development of a space-based weapon. Um, the information was deemed serious enough to warrant briefing Congress and key allies, um, Chairman Turner actually asked the Biden administration to declassify the information so that they can actually have an open discussion between Congress and other key allies. Well, um, obviously, that sounds quite alarming, like we need something else to inflame tensions globally. Can yeah. you elaborate on what this space-based weapon is or and why it's causing such a stir? Yeah, so the, the details are still somewhat murky. Um, I, I don't have the intelligence on it, and I wouldn't be putting it out there if I did. But 
what we can do is kind of read between the lines and, and figure out what's actually going on here in an open source space. This is my favorite thing to do. Read between the lines. Yeah. <laughs> we do it every day. <laughs> now, tell me what you're not I'm just kidding. Me. Yeah. Tell me what you really want to say. <laughs> uh, but the, the reports have suggested that this could possibly involve Russian attempts to develop a space-based anti-satellite nuclear weapon. Hopefully oh, they'll use North Korea's space technology <laughs> to send it. I don't know if that's hopefully because it's going to come crashing right back down. And that oh, yeah, that's true, be, that's true. That's true. That's true. That may not be good. I just meant like so it doesn't go up and disrupt yeah, it doesn't our get infrastructure. Up there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all I was thinking about in that moment. Obviously, I do not want any nuclear weapons being detonated on yeah, the planet. And, and the idea of nuclear capabilities in space is is alarming but it's confusing to me because i think mm. lasers work a lot better in disrupting you know, satellite systems especially in a low orbit they want to use low earth orbit mm-hmm. um so that's that first layer of of space um it's just very confusing why they would want to use nuclear weapons and it makes me really want to understand in low it, orbit they want to use a yeah, low, low orbit low wouldn't orbit that affect, wouldn't that affect like the actual planet as well. Oh yeah, I don't know the science. So it's not just about hitting critical infrastructure and like our abilities to communicate. Um, It's also about the potential of what could happen if you detonate a weapon there. Yeah, the the impact of the detonation in in low orbit, we have no idea. Yeah, we have Um, no idea. Okay, yeah. Well, that is pretty scary, and they'd be pretty dumb to set that off. I think, I absolutely think so. That's my opinion on it. Um, But it is a threat that I think we all need to to be looking at. Not worried today that a nuclear bomb is going to go off in low Earth orbit, but if if Russia starts disrupting satellite systems um, or, or threatening the crucial satellites you're talking about killing off communications killing off your gps your navigation global positioning systems we would and, all be screwed then i know right we <laughs> no one knows would. no one knows how to drive anywhere without gps anymore no nope. like i know the only town i know like the back of my hand is my hometown and new orleans okay i'm not that's not true yeah, i also don't need know it for new, new orleans. orleans yeah i don't need it for new orleans to get to New Orleans, but those are the two places that I know very well. Everywhere else, even here, even though we've lived here for almost five years now, I still find myself turning on my GPS just to go short distances because I know if I don't, because I get distracted kind of easily, whether I'm singing or having a conversation with my kids in the car or a conversation with you. And if I don't pay total attention, I will wind up driving my rear end into Maryland or take a quick <laughs> jaunt into West Virginia on accident, right. you know? <laughs> well, I, I think another aspect of it up here is you have to yeah. figure out how traffic looks because you can, yeah. there, are three, there are usually three ways to get to a certain location. Yeah. And two of those ways are usually backed up with traffic. So Right. Well, <laughs> okay. Getting yeah. back to, to this, um, my biggest concern with this, with these systems that, could impact the United States is mm-hmm. this uh, aspect of nuclear command and control because what happens here is 
what Russia, it looks like they're trying to do is blind the United States from actively using their radars to identify Russian missiles that are being launched. And obviously be able to communicate so our defense yep. can be, yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's what I'm the most worried about. Well, that is indeed worrisome. Um, now, you said that um, House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner has called for President Biden, Biden, geez, to declassify uh, this information in order to facilitate like a public discourse on what's going on. Do you think this is the right move or do you think he should kind of table it for now while they figure out more so, about this weapon? I'm not. I'd love to get into the head of Mike Turner. I yeah. I don't know why Am he decided to make it public the way he did. Um, he yeah. Don't people usually get in trouble about with that sort of thing? You know, they get lambasted yeah. for you know compromising the security of the nation. And uh, and I forgot who it was, but his you know leadership above him came out and said that. They had already had a meeting set up to do exactly what he was asking for. So there was no need. February 15th. So he did this February 14th. There was already a meeting on the books February 15th to go over this information. So that sounds suspiciously like a clout chaser to me. Well, yeah, I don't, you know, some people have. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know him. I don't know. It's just kind of weird if they already had this meeting ready to go the day after he decides to divulge this information yeah. to the general public. It's just kind of bizarre. I mean, now, I another aspect to it is that, you know, the, the Ukraine aid, that bill passed the Senate. The House said that they're not going to vote in favor of it. Mike Turner is a Republican House member who actually voted for the initial Ukraine bill. He is a supporter of giving more aid to Ukraine. So he's and trying so to the, force the Democrats' hand? Is, a, is that? I think he's trying to force... Well, this is one of the conspiracies uh, that I could see that he's trying... Let's go! Let's <laughs> go! We are tangenting, just like we said we would. <laughs> he said, you know, he's he's a supporter of sending aid to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in his party, including the, president, the person that's going to be running for president in the Republican Party, is opposed mm-hmm. to sending more aid to Ukraine. That is wild. So the Senate has to. Yeah. So the Senate passed the bill. So they okay. can back down. This is just a little history, a little uh, civics lesson in how the U.S. works or how it's supposed to work. How it's supposed to work. So the Senate passed the bill. It goes back to the House of Representatives. Um, the the House of Representatives can do three things: they can approve it, they can deny it, they can amend it, and send it back to the Senate. And we just keep hop scotch, doing that back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it could very well be that Mike Turner was trying to highlight that Russia has a new capability. And so that Ukraine aid needs to come very quickly. And so he's trying to round up all the house members to look at this intelligence, show them how terrifying it is. And so that they will vote in favor of the bill. That's yet to be seen because we don't have a vote right now in the house for the bill. But this weapon isn't an imminent threat, and I'm pretty sure even Putin knows that it would be suicide to shoot that into yeah, I, the low I mean, Earth atmosphere. So. And we, uh, I mean, a lot of people have said this 
even to me, because I've talked about using tactical nukes within Ukraine and how that's not as dumb as, you know, just sending nukes to Western <laughs> Europe or the, the U.S. Yeah. And they yeah. said that I'm an idiot for thinking he would actually do that. But um, and uh, maybe I am. Uh, I've been called worse or been called stupid for other things. But what? Um, <laughs> you're just going you're just like t- i'm think you're thinking about all the times you got bullied by people who didn't yep. agree with what you were saying and if you're listening right now i'm coming for you <laughs> oh that I, better, I better hop off of this. i better hop off of this because i um, bully you constantly no what, I, what i'm trying to get at here <laughs> is that um honestly from everything that i've i've read on this and everything i've scraped from open source is that the U.S. actually doesn't know if Russia... So Russia had a recent satellite launch. Um, It was highly uh, put out there in the media. And what the U.S. has said is, we don't know if that was the actual... As far as open source is concerned, that was the actual device that we're discussing now. Um, And so does Russia have that capability? They say that Russia does have the capability. Whether or not they've actually put it into orbit is what they're discussing um of is that true or not so we just don't know but um the it's so they think that it could potentially have already been launched into orbit there are some that believe that that seems a little bit more um worrying than just a hypothetical situation right which leads to mike turner's fear right um, but he was if they he was kind of shot down, and they said it's not an imminent threat; it's a long term threat. Oh, and I yeah. I tend to agree. And what I mean by a long term threat mm-hmm. is that long term, when NATO and Russia get involved in a near peer conflict, Russia has the opportunity to use this capability to disrupt a lot of communications. And to disrupt this command and control that we have, especially with our within our nuclear systems. Um, so now you asked a question, and I still haven't answered it. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, okay. Hold on. Let me think. Uh, the question was: um, Do you think? Okay. Do you think it was the right? Was move this the right move for um, Mike Turner to just announce this, even though there was already a meeting on the book? I'm on the fence about this because um, he didn't actually release the intelligence. He just said that there was uh, something that was concerning. So I appreciate that. Um, but uh, where I come from is that usually people think of classified intelligence is the information that's being presented. Like this happened and it's super classified. Nine times out of 10, the information is classified because the detail like that the information details the means by which the United States acquires that intelligence so the systems that we use in order to acquire the intelligence is highly classified we don't want that getting out there so on one hand transparency is very crucial especially in today's age of misinformation um, and and when it comes to matters of national security but allowing for open discussion can help garner support for necessary measures to address the threat and that might be what he's trying to do here um now i'll also say declassifying sensitive information carries a lot of risks and those are particularly in terms of re- revealing intelligence sources whether those are, are human or systems and then the methods by which we acquire intelligence so what steps do you think should be taken to address this potential threat effectively 
Well, first and foremost, we've got a, it's, it's essential for the U.S. to continue closely monitoring developments, keep gathering intelligence on Russian capabilities. That's happening. That happens every minute of every day. Um, there are certain locations that are just looking at Russian capabilities, and they're a 24-7 shop. They have somebody in office all the time. Um, also, so away from the intelligence community and military, we also need to, to ramp up some diplomatic efforts um, to engage with Russia, even though, you know, big bad Russia, they invaded Ukraine. We got to inva- engage with uh, Ukraine, prevent further escalation. So strengthening international cooperation, bolstering defensive measures, that's going to protect critical space assets and it's going to be crucial moving forward. Absolutely. Well, this is obviously a complex issue that is going to require very careful navigation because obviously this is uncharted territory. We've never had this sort of thing be yeah, a and there's, threat before. There's also the Space Treaty of 1968, I believe. Mm-hmm. That states no one will put nuclear weapons in outer space. No one but Putin. Well, this could be a violation of that treaty and we'll we'll go from there. Well, that'll be a whole other ballgame. If if he actually launched this weapon secretly and we had no idea and it's just floating up there, that'll that'll be something. Okay, so, I mean, I guess there isn't a whole lot you can say until more information becomes public. Otherwise, we're just speculating and assuming certain things. So as we wait for more information to become available to the public, uh, let's get to our next topic. Can you explain how the Red Sea crisis has implications for China in the Middle East? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, over the past few months, we've seen the escalating violence and tensions in the Middle East. This is particularly centered around the Red Sea. That's where the U.S. is getting involved. Um, Houthi attacks on shipping have disrupted global trade routes. We're seeing the economic repercussions happen. Um, so this crisis put a spotlight on China's role in the region and also its approach to the regional diplomacy. And we discussed this before, you know, I think it was maybe January or December. We talked about how China is hands off during these attacks on civilian ships. Yeah, and China has often presented itself as a rising global power with interests beyond just economic ones, but what you were describing seems to suggest something slightly different. Can Mm. you elaborate on China's approach to the Middle East and how it's playing out in this crisis? Yeah, so uh, China's interest in the Middle East primarily revolves around the energy sector, because it heavily relies on oil imports from that region. Uh, Currently, the strategy has been to coexist with the United States while expanding its economic ties in the region with BRICS+. Plus. That's what they want to do. Despite portraying itself as a global player, China's response to the Red Sea crisis has been seen as lacking proactive diplomacy. So it looks like, you know, I'm not doing what I'm saying I want to do. And instead... They're prioritizing their own economic interests within the region. I'm so shocked. Uh, I mean, it's interesting how China's actions, or in this case, lack thereof, can contrast with um, their rhetoric on promoting peace and stability. Can you remember we discussed that for uh, one of the podcasts? They put out how they're promoting peace and stability throughout the globe and. It's actually the West that is is doing the wrong thing. Or they're trying, but we also 
it's more of a I mean, we do the same thing <laughs> you kind of thing yeah so can you shed some light on why china seems hesitant to engage more actively in resolving this crisis because i feel like it might you know bolster what they're saying about promoting peace and stability yeah wouldn't that be the the thing if china comes yeah. along and stops the houthi attacks and stops the, yeah. the shabab attacks off the coast of somalia um that would be a very interesting development and actually probably would impact the united states negatively on the on the global scale yeah but the the whole key fact, the one key factor in all of this is China's rivalry with the United States. So oh. China sees the Middle East as a battleground for influence, not a battleground for military. Um, its actions are often driven by a desire to undermine U.S. interests rather than genuinely promote stability in the region. So they're loving the instability because it is making the United States go on the offensive, use up all those munitions be less prepared for that Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Additionally, China's focus on economic interests may lead it to prioritize short-term gains, what they're getting right now, short-term gains for their economy, over those long-term strategic stability gains. Okay, so in essence, China's approach seems to be more about advancing its own agenda rather than contributing to regional and global peace as mm-hmm. they claim to be trying to demonstrate. But how does this impact its relationships with Middle Eastern countries, especially those directly affected by the crisis? Because supposedly they want to help, you know, with BRICS Plus, you know, economically help these countries with BRICS Plus. But then they're just kind of sitting on the sidelines watching these conflicts develop and they're not doing anything. So it's kind of and it's negatively impacting the economies of those countries that it hopes will support them. But and do you think that's part of why some countries in BRICS are kind of backing down yeah. on membership because they aren't taking a more proactive approach? In oh, you are spot on. You, you have read it. You have gotten it. Um, this approach that China has taken has strained its relationships with some of the Middle Eastern countries. What yeah. you were discussing is that country, Saudi Arabia, who backtracked on joining well, India for a while. India for a while was trying to get out of it too. Weren't India they? wanted well. India wants to separate themselves from China a bit. Yeah, understanding they're going to need another economic powerhouse like the United States to be an ally with them. So yeah, it's really hurting. China right now. Um, oh, Saudi Arabia yes. perceives these actions from China as opportunistic. Or lack of action. Yeah. And and it's a Chinese opportunistic action rather than a genuine action to keep stability in the region. Um, now, some of the Middle Eastern states, like Iran, have welcomed Chinese investments and partnerships. These others, like Saudi Arabia, are becoming very wary of being too dependent on China, which we have told anyone who lists this podcast, do not be completely dependent on China. It will come back to haunt you. Um, and this especially if it comes at the expense. So they're very wary because it's coming at the expense of their own security, their own economy, and their own stability. Well, since we are in the year of elections, I want to get into the recent presidential election in Indonesia where a former army general has claimed victory. So how significant is this win, particularly in the context of Indonesia's geopolitical landscape? 
Yeah, his, his victory is very significant, and it's significant on multiple fronts. So Indonesia is a key player in Southeast Asia, and that's both economically and strategically. Um, so this new president, his controversial military past, his military background has raised concerns about the future direction of Indonesian politics. Um, his win is seen as a precursor to shifts in domestic and foreign policies that could impact regional dynamics within the Indo-Pacific. Okay, so what is in his controversial military background? Like, what well, he what? so he is seen as like a right wing sort of dictator. Um, so heavy on security, mm-hmm. cracking down on protests, things like that. Oh, okay. Um, All right, don't like so, it. So it's that it's that kind of stuff. It's a it's secure your borders, and if you do that, no one's going to come around and and mess with you. Hmm. Right. Okay. That's working out really well for. Well, it is. Uh, it is and changing the dynamics within the South China Sea for sure. Good. We need all this thing, all these things to remain in flux. We don't need yeah. calm and tranquility. <laughs> okay. So, uh, one region where these shifts within the Indo-Pacific can be felt strongly is the South China Sea. How might his presidency affect the tensions that are in that area? Yeah, I mean, just take Indonesia out of it. The South China Sea is a hotbed of geopolitical competition right now. Um, Put Indonesia in there. There is overlapping territorial claims that involves China. Um, The the Southeast, you know, the Southeast Asian nations like Taiwan, uh, plus the United States. There are some United States territories that, China kind of wants to have access to. So this new president's military background and his past comments on security issues could signal a more assertive Indonesian stance in the region. Um, What happens there could potentially escalate tensions, especially if they take a tougher stance against Chinese maritime activities like the Philippines are doing right now when those are happening in those disputed waters. Well, that's crucial point. Speaking of China, how might this presidency impact relations between Indonesia and China, as well as the broader U.S.-China rivalry? Yeah, that's all the big questions, right? How is this going to affect the globe? Um, Indonesia and China have been relatively stable in their relations. Um, They have economic cooperation as a key aspect of their relationship. Um, But If Indonesia adopts a more confrontational approach towards China, it's definitely going to strain those bilateral ties. Um, That's going to have implications for this broader U.S.-China rivalry, uh, because the U.S. has been seeking to strengthen ties with Southeast Asian nations as part of its uh, deterrence Indo-Pacific strategy. So any deterioration in Indonesia-China relations could potentially draw Indonesia closer to the United States, and that then complicates the regional dynamics of the Indo-Pacific. Well, just like we predicted, the elections of 2024 are continuing to reshape the governments all around the world. So let's get to our final topic and discuss the escalating tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus region. So what is the latest going on there, guys? (laughs) Well, this is uh, because of so just just earlier this week, there was a deadly skirmish on the border. Um, the Armenian prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, issued a blunt warning to Azerbaijan 
because he says that their intentions are to go on a full-scale war. Um, he highlighted what he said was those alleged plans by Azerbaijan to conduct a full-scale war against Armenia. This came from some analysis from their own intelligence community, but also it comes from like recent events, like a border skirmish that just happened there, um, and also statements from Azerbaijani officials who are claiming pretty much a lot of the same thing. Okay, well, let's rewind a little bit for those who don't understand. What are the roots of this conflict? Well, I mean, it goes back years, um, but things really escalated. If you remember last September, we talked about this. Um, Azerbaijan swiftly recaptured that Armenian-populated region, the Nagorno-Karabakh region. That military offensive intensified this long-standing animosity between the two neighbors. Those wounds from that conflict are still fresh, so this situation remains highly volatile. How valid are the prime minister's concerns about Azerbaijan using its recent success in Nagorno-Karabakh to as a springboard, you know, for further military actions? It's, I mean, it's valid. Um, yeah. It's also complex. Everything's because, complex. Nothing is simple. <laughs> well, you know, it's the elections, right? Elections of 2024. Uh, before that, we've also had other elections and... Azerbaijan had an election and their president won re-election. So that's playing a part of this. What what do the people of Azerbaijan think? You know, what does the president think the people of Azerbaijan want? Um, but I will I can say this. That president has asserted that Azerbaijan has no territorial ambitions against Armenia. They've accused Armenia of blackmail. Um, so that's what he's saying. We take both sides of the story. But given the history and the, the, you know, the recent events that have happened, I'm a little skeptical. And I think a lot of people should be skeptical about what's going to happen in that region. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you mentioned it on the podcast, but I know you mentioned it to me quite recently today. Um, you know, that time that Mr. Putin walked around and told all yeah, yeah. the world leaders, he's like, I'm not going to invade Ukraine. I'm not going to do that. I'm like, no. Exactly. Of course and, not. And, and then the media took him at his word and those presidential leaders, world leaders took him at his word. We did not as a podcast. No. He said he is going to invade and don't listen to that guy. He's plotting. He's plotting. And, uh, you know, history will, will tell that tale. <laughs> The history of this podcast. So despite earlier optimism about a potential peace agreement, we're still at a stalemate. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So there have been mediated talks, but those fail to yield any breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. Um, Both sides are very much entrenched in in what they want. Yeah, Um, firmly digging in their heels. Yep. And then what happened earlier this week didn't help that situation. At the Um, border. At the border. So both Armenia and Azerbaijan have accused each other of opening fire on the border this for this week. So they're blaming each other for doing it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, the, the problem is that it led to the tragic death of four Armenian soldiers and, and Armenia yeah. cannot allow that to stand. Um, they're going to have to to react to it. So the, the broader implications are significant. That's regional stability there. There's an energy corridor that's there to get you know, oil and natural gas through. Um, And then there's the delegate balance of power. So we're walking, at least we're 2024. We're only in February of 2024. 
We are walking this geopolitical tightrope. This, what's happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan, what's happening all over, the world does not need right now. Like, this is the, this is not what we need. We have inflation. We have all kinds of stuff. Thank you, Kervin. Is that all you have for us this week? That's it, unless you have anything you want to add. Well, I guess, nope, I'm good. Nope, tangents <laughs> are done. Tangents are done. Tangents are done. We are closing this up. Um, thank you so much for listening to our tiny little geopolitical podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakwin Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there. <laughs>